You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this BMJ podcast. I'm Mabel Chu, practice editor for the BMJ and a GP in Sydney. This week, we're concentrating on the problem of overactive bladder syndrome. It's something that GPs are presented with often, and it's part of a cluster of articles in this week's BMJ. One of the articles is on anti-muscarinic drugs to treat overactive bladder syndrome. I'm joined by the authors Linda Cardozo, a professor of urogynecology, and Dudley Robinson, a consultant urogynecologist, both at King's College Hospital in London. To start the podcast, Linda talked about what defines overactive bladder syndrome. Well, the overactive bladder is a constellation of symptoms. It's a symptomatic diagnosis, and the key symptom is urgency, with or without frequency and nocturia, with or without urgency incontinence. And it is based purely on a patient's symptoms. It's a symptom syndrome, and it's not based on any underlying diagnosis following investigations. However, it is presumed that when these symptoms occur in the absence of any other obvious pathology, such as a urinary tract infection, that they are due to an uninhibited detrusor contraction, which is measurable on urodynamic uh, testing. And these uh, uninhibited detrusor contractions, when urodynamics are undertaken, constitute a diagnosis of detrusor overactivity. So the assumption is that if other pathology has been excluded, detrusor overactivity is the cause of the symptoms of the overactive bladder. But the two terms aren't synonymous, are they? No, and that's very important because, of course, far more women will have symptoms of an overactive bladder than will have a diagnosis of detrusor overactivity, and that's for a variety of reasons. And in the last assessment that I made of the symptoms of urgency and frequency, there are about 33 or 34 different causes in women, some of which are as benign as pregnancy or excessive fluid intake. Okay. Um, Now, your article deals mainly with overactive bladder in women. Can you tell us uh, how common it is then? Well, of course, Dudley Robinson and I are both gynecologists, and although we're specialists in urogynecology, we don't treat men, and so we've focused on women. And although overactive bladder symptoms are probably nearly as common in men as they are in women, the underlying causes may be different. Now, how might a woman present then? Well, women will usually present complaining that uh, they have to rush to go to the bathroom, that they can't get there in time, that when they put the key in the door, they're already wetting their pants before they can take them down. Uh, And they will often not seek help at all from a healthcare professional, fearing that these symptoms are normal or the result of aging, uh, or that nothing can be done about the symptoms. So far fewer patients have a diagnosis or have medical help than actually suffer from symptoms. Often with women, it's incontinence that makes them actually seek help. They can quite often live with the symptoms of urgency, frequency, even nocturia, that's getting up at night, but incontinence makes them socially unacceptable and once they start to fear leakage and become um, socially uh, recluse or, or stop being able to go to work or being as productive, then they may seek medical help. 
And what sort of incontinence are we talking about here? Usually in association with an overactive bladder, it's urgency incontinence, the inability to reach the toilet in time, rather than stress incontinence, which is more commonly associated with a weak pelvic floor. And, of course, the importance of making a differential diagnosis is that stress incontinence is treated differently from urgency incontinence. Absolutely. Now, the... GP, having elicited the symptom complex that you've discussed, um, will then need to exclude pathology such as a urinary tract infection or other pathology. Let's suppose that this has been done uh, in a consultation with the GP. What are the treatment options that I as a GP might want to raise with my patient? Well, first of all, excluding other pathology is, as you say, very important. It's important to undertake an abdominal or pelvic examination because, of course, anything pressing on the bladder may lead to these symptoms. It's important to dip stick the urine to exclude urinary tract infection and if it's equivocal then to culture the urine to check that there isn't an infection present and treat it because urinary tract infection can lead to very similar symptoms to those of an overactive bladder. So those are very important and easy things the general practitioner can do. The general practitioner can also give some general advice regarding avoidance of constipation um, which can cause or exacerbate symptoms and about sensible measures to reduce fluid intake. It's very commonly thought nowadays that lots of water is good for you, but actually the more you drink, the more you have to void and and empty your bladder more frequently. And it's been shown quite clearly now that a reduction, even a modest reduction in overall fluid intake can reduce the, the symptoms of an overactive bladder. In addition, the type of fluid that's drunk can be important and caffeine-containing drinks and alcohol, particularly white wine, may exacerbate these symptoms. So some general lifestyle advice and weight reduction can be very important indeed. But if these simple measures fail to relieve the symptoms, then usually behavioral modification and bladder retraining is the next advice that's given. And the NICE guidelines suggest that there should be six weeks of bladder retraining prior to any medication. And what do you mean by bladder retraining? Um, Usually it's important to explain to the individual how their bladder works and that they often will get into a very bad habit of feeling they need to empty frequently, worried that they might have an accident, and therefore going to pass urine opportunistically rather than by desire. And this leads to shorter and shorter intervoid intervals uh, and exacerbate the symptoms. So usually telling a patient to drink a normal fluid intake keep a chart if necessary, and start by passing urine perhaps every hour and a half. And when they can manage an hour and a half uh, without wetting or voiding, then they can increase the time gradually by 15 or 30 minutes each week until eventually they're able to achieve a better bladder capacity, a longer intervoid interval, and acceptable frequency of micturition. Thank you. That's a really nice overview of the conservative measures available. What's the role of pelvic floor exercises? Are they any use? Pelvic floor exercises are a very well-established treatment for stress urinary incontinence and also for mixed urinary incontinence. But the clinical trials have been less good in urgency urinary incontinence. 
Uh, however, there are now recommendations from the International Consultation on Incontinence based on a Cochrane guideline that pelvic floor muscle training should be utilized in the management, in the conservative management of the overactive bladder, although the evidence is not as good as it is for stress urinary incontinence. Now, we know that overactive bladder has several different causes, including uh, an idiopathic form and a more specific neurogenic form. How differently do they respond to treatment? Patients who have neurogenic detrusor overactivity due to an underlying neurological disorder such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease or a spinal cord lesion are more likely to need antimuscarinic medication early on to suppress their uninhibited detrusor contractions and to avoid renal damage. Okay. So in, in those pa- groups of patients, uh, urinodynamic studies are probably going to play a larger role. Yes, much larger role and, and are important early on. And the other thing that I just thought I should mention was symptoms of urogenital atrophy in older women, postmenopausal women, can be confused with symptoms of an overactive bladder. And for them, of course, um, urogenital atrophy or vaginal atrophy is the result of estrogen deficiency and may present for the first time many years, perhaps 10 years after the last menstrual period. And therefore, that is also underdiagnosed and under-recognized, but will respond very well to low-dose local topical vaginal estrogens, either given in the form of cream or vaginal tablets. So in postmenopausal women, there might be a role for a trial of treatment with topical uh, estrogens first. The, the topical estrogens in this situation work as well, if not better, than systemic estrogens. So in a woman who is not having hormone replacement therapy, who is postmenopausal and complains of lower urinary tract symptoms, which are of recent onset, um, it may be worth trying topical estrogens in the first instance together with conservative measures. So that was Linda Cardozo, Professor of Urogynecology at King's College Hospital on the causes and non-drug treatment of overactive bladder syndrome. Now Dudley Robinson, a consultant urogynecologist also at King's College Hospital, explains drug treatment for the condition. Dudley, what drugs are available to treat overactive bladder? We now have a a number of different drugs on the market and, of course, the largest group of those drugs are the antimuscarinic drugs. Um, The first of these, which um, has really been used, was oxybutynin, which has a mixed action um, and, as well as being an antimuscarinic, also has a local anaesthetic effect. Other drugs, such as tolteridine, have been introduced more recently and the newer drugs are the more M3-specific drugs, such as darofenacin and solofenacin. And how effective are they in treating overactive bladder syndrome? We've heard from Linda that there are conservative measures available. What, if, what role, if any, do these drugs play? The evidence from the Cochrane reports would suggest that all of the drugs have a statistically significant effect in terms of efficacy on lower urinary tract symptoms. But of course, it's always difficult to translate that statistical effect into a clinically relevant effect. And to, to interpret those, those trials better, we now have a selection of patient-related outcome measures, um, which really show that the majority of antimuscarinic drugs on the market are clinically effective in terms of improving um, voiding symptoms, but also improving quality of life of the patients. 
Now, that real-life effectiveness is tinged somewhat with problems with persistence taking the medication due to side effects. Is that not uh, the case? Yes, some of the some of the early work, and I'll go again back to using um, oxybutynin as an example. Uh, when Con Keller, who was working with Linda Cardozo at King's, he demonstrated quite clearly that only 20% of patients were still taking drugs six months after starting, and only around 5% of them actually felt that they'd been cured of their symptoms. With the newer agents, and particularly the long-acting once daily agents, uh, we hoped that we'd see an improvement in compliance and persistence. But if you actually look at the, the data, there's, there's very little difference between the long-acting once daily agents and the immediate release preparations. And I think part of the problem is that women tend to see overactive bladder drugs as a, as a lifestyle drug rather than perhaps um, how we think about an antihypertensive agent or a cholesterol-lowering drug. And I think maybe it's that difference in perception which also leads to, to problems in persistence. Mm. And what are the side effects that people have difficulty with? The most common antimuscarinic side effects are dry mouth, constipation, blurred vision and somnolence. Uh, but the, the particular one that patients tend to complain about is dry mouth. And in the elderly, there are particular problems, aren't there? Yes. In the, in the elderly, one of the biggest worries is um, declining cognitive function. Uh, and that's something that we see commonly with, with many of the drugs on the market, and in particular oxybutynin. And it, there's an interesting little anecdote that apparently if you're an airline pilot in the United States, you're not allowed to fly your aeroplane if you're taking oxybutynin. And I think part of the problem with cognitive effect is it, it's something that we hadn't realized uh, for a long time. Uh, there's now lots of studies looking at it um, and really showing that the newer drugs, again, such as solifenesin, darifenesin, and fesoteridine, have much less cognitive effect than some of the older agents. But we should be wary of prescribing these drugs in any case. In, in elderly patients, should we avoid them entirely or drop the dose? What's your advice there? I think um, certainly not avoid them entirely because, of course, the, the incidence of overactive bladder increases in more elderly patients. I think be careful in terms of prescribing practice. Possibly think about a reduced dose or possibly think about the drug which you're using. Trospium chloride is a quaternary amine, which means it's less lipophilic and it's less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier, and it's a drug we tend to favor more commonly in the elderly. Conversely, oxybutynin, particularly in a high dose, has a very high effect on, on cognitive function, so that tends to be a drug that we avoid. And are there any absolute or relative contraindications for these drugs? Absolute contraindications, particularly in the elderly, is closed-angle glaucoma. And certainly we would generally check with an ophthalmologist in anyone with glaucoma whether they felt it was safe to use or not. Other absolute contraindications include myasemia gravis, uh, severe ulcerative colitis, and um, intestinal obstruction. But of course, that's something that's, that's going to be quite unlikely in, in general practice. Mm. Uh, in terms of pregnancy, the advice we generally give is that you should avoid all drugs within the first uh, trimester, so the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, but then really the only drug that has any reasonable safety data in pregnancy is oxybutynin. 
And are there any cautions or precautions we should take with patients who have hepatic or, or renal impairment? Many, many of the drugs, uh, and especially solifenacin and darifenacin, are metabolized in the liver. And any drugs that affect the cytochrome system may potentiate the effect of the antimuscarinic. So perhaps it's, it's, it's important just to drop the dose in patients um, with liver disease. Equally, um, some of the antimuscarinics, again, using solifenacin as an example, uh, are excreted for, by the renal root and should be dropped in patients with uh, renal um, dysfunction. And presumably also then we ought to avoid drugs that compete with the cytochrome P450 system. Yes, yes. So um, some of the antimicrobials should be avoided if you're using um, an antimuscarinic. Okay, so let's say you have a patient who has clear symptoms of overactive bladder syndrome. You've excluded uh, infection and other pathology. She is otherwise well, has not had much success with conservative measures and is keen to know about drugs. It's important when we, when we think about looking after patients with overactive bladder that we offer them a package of care. And if you look at some of the more recent data looking at compliance and persistence, those patients who have support from perhaps a continence advisor or a continence nurse in conjunction with drug therapy do much better. When we think about drug therapy, what we generally tend to do is start on the lowest effective dose, and that, that dose can then be effectively titrated upwards uh, to get better symptom control. Within the UK, if we follow the NICE guidelines, uh, which were first published in 2006 and are currently being uh, rewritten and re-reviewed, uh, oxybutynin is currently the first choice for overactive bladder. And then after that, the other agents such as tolteridine, solifenacin, darifenacin, fesoteridine, and trospium chloride and propivirin. And what we generally try and do is find a drug which suits that particular patient best. Perhaps one of the interesting things about antimuscarinic therapy is that not all patients respond the same way to all drugs. So just because one patient fails on one drug doesn't mean to say that she wouldn't respond better to another. So it's worth trying uh, another one in the same group. And do you have any tips for patients to cope with the antimuscarinics or anticholinergic side effects? As, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps the, the biggest side effect which causes bothersomeness is the dry mouth. So we would generally advise our patients to either try chewing gum, perhaps sucking a pastel, to try and increase salivary production uh, to prevent that being such a problem. Obviously, what, what we don't want them to do is to drink more fluids because that's going to make their overactive bladder symptoms worse. In addition, um, on the market, there are several preparations which are salivary stimulants, um, but of course they tend to be quite expensive and tend to uh, really be used for patients who are undergoing cancer therapies. Commonly, we just advise patients to use simple things such as sucking sweets or chewing gum. And do you give them prophylactic uh, advice uh, about dealing with constipation as well? Yes, we, we, when we prescribe an antimuscarinic agent, we'd normally cover the, the, the major side effects, and in particular, dry mouth and constipation. In terms of constipation, we'd encourage them to eat a healthy diet, um, but if they fear they're becoming um, constipated, then perhaps review the medication with, with their general practitioner um, who may or may not reduce the dose or perhaps um, 
think about prescribing a laxative or advise them to use an over-the-counter laxative as well. Now, you mentioned somnolence uh, or sleepiness as a possible side effect. If that occurs with a particular drug, uh, would the advice be then to try another in the same group or to try dropping the dose of that drug? I think if, if somnolence was a problem, um, I would generally, as a first line, probably switch to a drug that may have less um, cognitive side effects. So I may think about using uh, trospium chloride because it's less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier or alternatively darafenacin. If that doesn't work, an alternative approach would be to slightly switch the class. So perhaps thinking about using propivirin. Uh, propivirin is a combined calcium antagonist and antimuscarinic and very often we find that patients who are intolerant to antimuscarinics in general tend to have fewer problems um, using using propivirin. Perhaps what may alter our therapeutic options in the near future is that there's a new class of drugs um, about to be launched, um, the beta-3 agonists of which Merobegron is probably going to be the first to be licensed in the UK and if we look at the beta-3 agonists, their efficacy tends to be very similar to that of an antimuscarinic, but of course the side effects are much less. Dudley, thank you very much for that helpful summary of the role of antimuscarinic drugs and how to advise patients taking them. You're, you're very welcome. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll also publish a clinical review that provides an overview of overactive bladder syndrome. Do look out for that cluster on bmj.com. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.